the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Early part of this year, and then more recently, coupled with the challenges we're facing here in the San Francisco Bay Area the last week as a direct result of the fires. In fact, more than two dozen major fires continue burning simultaneously in Northern California, taxing our state's firefighting capacity. All of them, if not the majority, sparked by unprecedented lightning siege that struck nearly 11,000 times over several days starting last Sunday morning. So far, the fires have destroyed 175 structures, including homes, and are threatening 50,000 more. In all, 33 civilians and firefighters have been injured. More than 10,000 California firefighters remain on the front lines, although they're beginning to get stretched to the limit, as some firefighters have been working 72-hour shifts instead of the usual 24 hours. So far, the state has requested 375 engines and crews from other states to help in the firefighting duties. In the coastal mountain regions heading south of the peninsula, San Mateo County, and into Santa Cruz, some 26,000 have been under orders to evacuate. And of course, the CZU August Lightning Complex fire has grown so far to 62 square miles. South of us in central California, a pilot on a water-dropping mission in western Fresno County has died when his helicopter crashed, and it's now being reported that a Pacific Gas and Electric utility worker who had been clearing poles and lines to make the area safe for firefighters died in the fire in Vacaville yesterday. Meanwhile, two fires in Sonoma County have prompted evacuation orders for 8,000 residents near the Russian River. Residents of Healdsburg have been warned to be ready to flee as fires in that region have destroyed so far 100 buildings, including some homes. The governor today said that California has received a federal grant that will help reimburse the state for some of the firefighting costs. Meanwhile, I urge you to continue to not only be safe, stay indoors during this time of unprecedented levels of smog and smoke in the air, particularly if you have respiratory illness, and to be in prayer. Be in prayer for our state, for the brave firefighters that are doing their best to try to save both property and, most importantly, lives and recognizing we're facing some extremely challenging times both in our nation and on our state right now, and this is a time for praying people to do just that. Be praying. On the third night of the virtual Democrat National Convention, former President Barack Obama painted an unsparing portrait of American democracy on the brink if President Trump were to be reelected in November warning in a scathing, at times emotional, and very unforgiving address on Wednesday that his successor is both, quote, unfit for office and apathetic to the nation's founding principles, close quote. 
Obama's address amounted to one of the most sweeping and scathing condemnations ever of a sitting president by one of his predecessors. It was aimed squarely at jolting Democrats as well as Republicans ahead of the November election, casting the contest not simply as a choice between two politicians or two parties, but rather as a test of the endurance of American ideals. Through much of Trump's presidency, Obama has been restrained in his public comments, hewing to the tradition of former Oval Office occupants giving space to the current commander-in-chief. Yet he's become more pointed in his criticism in recent months, and his remarks Wednesday reveal the full extent of both his personal angst and disregard for the president and his apparent belief that President Trump somehow represents a threat to democracy in the United States. Meanwhile, the president, who appeared to be watching in real time, responded in tweets questioning why Obama had waited until after the Democratic presidential primary was over to endorse Biden. Obama's address also amounted to a call to action in particular to young people who took to the streets earlier this year protesting police brutality, casting them as the, quote, heirs to the legacy of civil rights leaders. Yet there's an inherent tension in Obama whose own political rise was fueled by the power of barrier-breaking generational change, oddly enough touting Biden, a 77-year-old white man who spent a career in politics for the presidency. Indeed, many of Obama's public comments since leaving the White House have focused on encouraging a new generation of political leaders to step up, both in America and around the world. He drew particular attention to the 2020 Democrat primary when he said many of the world's problems were due to, quote, old people, usually old men, not getting out of the way. Wow. With the general election now in full swing, Obama is well aware that one of the reasons that President Trump currently occupies the Oval Office in that those voters who did not show up in large numbers in 2016 for Hillary Clinton as they did when he was on the ballot. Obama spoke two nights after former First Lady Michelle Obama headlined the opening night of the convention and delivered her own scathing condemnation of the president. The fact that the Obamas were headliners on two of the four nights of the Democratic convention speaks to the role they're trying to help Biden reassemble a coalition and the challenge the Democrat Party is having in developing a new branch of leaders. Oddly, for all the talk Democrats do in calling for demanding change, the last three nights have been nothing but a parade of the same faces we've seen on the forefront of the DNC for the past 10, no 20, well actually 30 years change indeed. Well, at this juncture, I'll sort of um, leave the rest of my opining for the moment, and uh, we'll shift into some of the highlights of the Democrat National Convention. First up is former presidential candidate, Senator from Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren. Tonight, we've heard from the people who make America work, people who put their lives on the line to keep our country going. And since COVID-19 hit, They've taken one gut punch after another. And what has the COVID fallout done to our babies? Well, I'm here at the Early Childhood Education Center in Springfield, Massachusetts, which has been closed for months. Childcare was already hard to find before the pandemic, and now parents are stuck. No idea when schools can safely reopen and even fewer childcare options. The devastation is enormous, and the way I see it, Big problems demand big solutions. Now, I love a good plan, 
And Joe Biden has some really good plans. Plans to bring back union jobs in manufacturing and create new union jobs in clean energy. Plans to increase Social Security benefits, cancel billions in student loan debt, and make our bankruptcy laws work for families instead of the creditors who cheat them. These plans reflect a central truth. Our economic system has been rigged to give bailouts to billionaires and kick dirt in the face of everyone else. But we can build a thriving economy by investing in families and fixing what's broken. Joe's plan to build back better includes making the wealthy pay their fair share, holding corporations accountable, repairing racial inequities, and fighting corruption in Washington. Let me tell you about one of Joe's plans that's especially close to my heart, child care. As a little girl growing up in Oklahoma, what I wanted most in the world was to be a teacher. I loved teaching. And when I had babies and was juggling my first big teaching job down in Texas, it was hard. But I could do hard. The thing that almost sank me, child care. One night, my Aunt B called just to check in. And I thought I was fine, but then I just broke down and started to cry. I had tried holding it all together, but without reliable childcare, working was nearly impossible. And when I told Aunt B I was going to quit my job, I thought my heart would break. And then she said the words that changed my life. I can't get there tomorrow, but I'll come on Thursday. And she arrived with seven suitcases and a Pekingese named Buddy and stayed for 16 years. I get to be here tonight because of my Aunt B. I learned a fundamental truth. Nobody makes it on their own. And yet, here we are, two generations of working parents later. And if you have a baby and don't have an Aunt B, you're on your own. And here's why that is wrong. We build infrastructure like roads and bridges and communication systems so that people can work. That infrastructure helps us all because it keeps our economy going. It's time to recognize that childcare is part of the basic infrastructure of this nation. It's infrastructure for families. Joe and Kamala will make high-quality child care affordable for every family, make preschool universal, and raise the wages of every child care worker. Now, that's just one plan, but it gives you an idea of how we get this country working for everyone. Donald Trump's ignorance and incompetence have always been a danger to our country. COVID-19 was Trump's biggest test. He failed miserably. Today, America has the most COVID deaths in the world and an economic collapse. And both crises are falling hardest on black and brown families. Millions out of work, millions more trapped in cycles of poverty, millions on the brink of losing their homes, millions of restaurants and stores hanging by a thread. This crisis is bad and it didn't have to be this way. This crisis is on Donald Trump and the Republicans who enable him. On November 3rd, we will hold them all accountable. So, whether you're planning to vote, wearing a mask, or vote by mail, please take out your phone right now and text VOTE to 30 
We all need to be in the fight to get Joe and Kamala elected. And after November, we all need to stay in the fight to get big things done. We stay in this fight so that when our children and our grandchildren ask what we did during this dark chapter in our nation's history, we will be able to look them squarely in the eye and say, we organized, we persisted, and we changed America. There is um, Senator from Massachusetts, former presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren. And if you think that was fun, oh, wait till we come back and hear from the twice-failed presidential candidate that just won't go away. You're listening to Decision 2020, highlights of the Democrat National Convention on AM 1100 KFAX. Welcome back to Decision 2020, highlights of the Democrat convention here on KFAX. We talk often in terms as it relates to much of the policies and procedures related to both the way conventions are run and the political cycles every four years as to what is customary, what is historic, what is normative, and certainly this election is anything but any of those things. That said, it's pretty much been tradition that former presidents kind of lay low after they're done with their term in office. They will show up for the occasional funeral or for uh, perhaps um, uh, ceremonial-type activities. But aside from that, you generally don't hear much from them. Likewise, former presidential candidates who have had their run failed, in some cases took a second swing at it and failed, normally quietly go away, except this one. And uh, as much as it pains me to to open the mic here, I think we'd like to hear what's being said and uh, get a sense of uh, whether or not there's any sense of uh, change in attitude or heart or business as usual, as we hear from former First Lady, twice former failed presidential candidate, former Secretary of State, former briefly Senator Hillary Clinton. The morning after the last election, I said, we owe Donald Trump an open mind and the chance to lead. I meant it. Every president deserves that. And Trump came in with so much set up for him, a strong economy, plans for managing crises, including a pandemic. Yes, we Democrats would have disagreed with him on many things. But if he had put his own interests and ego aside, seen the humanity in a child ripped from her parents at the border, or a protester calling for justice, or a family wiped out by natural disaster, that would have been a good thing for America and the world. I wish Donald Trump knew how to be a president, because America needs a president right now. 
Throughout this time of crisis, Americans keep going, checking on neighbors, showing up to jobs as first responders, hospitals, grocery stores, nursing homes. Yes, it still takes a village. And we need leaders equal to this moment of sacrifice and service. We need Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Everyone has a story about Joe's caring and empathy. I remember him calling after my mother Dorothy died and we talked about being raised by strong women. The best testament to Joe is how he's cared for his family. And how great is it that Dr. Jill Biden plans to keep teaching as first lady? And Joe picked the right partner in Kamala. She's relentless in the pursuit of justice and equity, and she's kind. When her press secretary, Tyrone Gale, was dying of cancer, she dropped everything to be with him in his final moments. I know something about the slings and arrows she'll face, and believe me, this former district attorney and attorney general can handle them all. So this is the team to pull our nation back from the brink. But they can't do it without us. For four years, people have told me, I didn't realize how dangerous he was. I wish I could do it all over. Or worse, I should have voted. Look, this can't be another woulda, coulda, shoulda election. If you vote by mail, request your ballot now and send it back right away. If you vote in person, do it early. Become a poll worker. Most of all, no matter what, vote. As Michelle Obama and Bernie Sanders warned us, if Trump is reelected, things will get even worse. That's why we need unity now more than ever. Remember back in 2016 when Trump asked, what do you have to lose? Well, now we know. Our health care, our jobs, our loved ones our leadership in the world, and even our post office. But let's set our sights higher than getting one man out of the White House. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are going to give us so much to vote for. Let's vote for the jobs that Joe's plan will create, clean energy jobs to fight climate change, caregiving jobs with living wages, Vote for emergency relief that lifts small businesses and saves hardworking people from foreclosures and evictions. It's wrong that billionaires got $400 billion richer during the pandemic while millions lost their $600 a week in extra unemployment. Vote for the parents and teachers struggling to balance children's education and safety and for health care workers fighting COVID-19 with little help from the White House. Vote for paid family leave and health care for everyone, for Social Security, Medicare, and Planned Parenthood. Vote for dreamers and their families. Vote for law enforcement purged of racial bias that keeps all our streets safe. Vote for justice for George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery because black lives matter. Vote for honest elections so we, not a foreign adversary, choose our president. Vote for the diverse, hopeful America we saw in last night's roll call. And don't forget, Joe and Kamala can win by three million votes and still lose. Take it from me. So we need numbers overwhelming 
so Trump can't sneak or steal his way to victory. Text vote 3030 to get started. A hundred years ago yesterday, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution was ratified. It took seven decades of suffragists marching, picketing, and going to jail to push us closer to a more perfect union. Fifty-five years ago, John Lewis marched and bled in in America's future because of Kamala Harris, a black woman, the daughter of Jamaican and Indian immigrants, and our nominee for vice president. This is our country's story, breaking down barriers and expanding the circle of possibility. And to the young people watching, don't give up on America. Despite our flaws and problems, we've come so far. We can still be a more just, equal country with opportunities previous generations could never have imagined. There's a lot of heartbreak in America now. And the truth is, many things were broken before the pandemic. But as the saying goes, the world breaks everyone, and afterward, Many are strong at the broken places. That's Joe Biden. He knows how to keep going, unify, and lead because he's done that for his family and country. So come November, if we're strong together, we'll heal together. We'll redeem the soul and the promise of our country, led by President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. You're listening to Decision 2020, highlights of the Democrat National Convention on AM 1100 KFAX. Welcome back to Decision 2020 Highlights of the Democrat National Convention here on KFAX. She is the former San Francisco District Attorney, having beaten longtime DA Terrence Hallinan many years ago, former California Attorney General, currently California Senator, and Vice Presidential running mate of Joe Biden. Here's the acceptance speech by California Senator Kamala Harris. Greetings, America. It is truly an honor to be speaking with you tonight. That I am here tonight is a testament to the dedication of generations before me. Women and men who believed so fiercely in the promise of equality, liberty, and justice for all. This week marks the 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment, and we celebrate the women who fought for that right. Yet so many of the black women who helped secure that victory were still prohibited from voting long after its ratification. But they were undeterred. Without fanfare or recognition, they organized and testified and rallied and marched and fought, not just for their vote, but for a seat at the table. 
These women and the generations that followed worked to make democracy and opportunity real in the lives of all of us who followed. They paved the way for the trailblazing leadership of Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. And these women inspired us to pick up the torch and fight on. Women like Mary Church Terrell, Mary Cloyd Bethune, Fannie Lou Hamer, and Diane Nash, Constance Baker Motley, and the great Shirley Chisholm. We're not often taught their stories, but as Americans, we all stand on their shoulders. And there's another woman whose name isn't known, whose story isn't shared, another woman whose shoulders I stand on, and that's my mother, Shamala Gopalan Harris. She came here from India at age 19 to pursue her dream of curing cancer. At the University of California, Berkeley, she met my father, Donald Harris, who had come from Jamaica to study economics. They fell in love in that most American way while marching together for justice in the civil rights movement of the 1960s. In the streets of Oakland and Berkeley, I got a stroller's eye view of people getting into what the great John Lewis called good trouble. When I was five, my parents split, and my mother raised us mostly on her own. Like so many mothers, she worked around the clock to make it work, packing lunches before we woke up and paying bills after we went to bed, helping us with homework at the kitchen table and shuttling us to church for choir practice. She made it look easy, though it never was. My mother instilled in my sister Maya and me the values that would chart the course of our lives. She raised us to be proud, strong black women, and she raised us to know and be proud of our Indian heritage. She taught us to put family first, the family you're born into and the family you choose. Family is my husband, Doug, who I met on a blind date set up by my best friend. Family is our beautiful children, Cole and Ella, who call me Mamala. Family is my sister. Family is my best friend, my nieces, and my godchildren. Family is my uncles, my aunts, and my chitties. Family is Mrs. Shelton, my second mother who lived two doors down and helped raise me. Family is my beloved Alpha Kappa Alpha, our divine nine, and my HBCU brothers and sisters. Family is the friends I turn to when my mother, the most important person in my life, passed away from cancer. And even as she taught us to keep our family at the center of our world, she also pushed us to see a world beyond ourselves. She taught us to be conscious and compassionate about the struggles of all people, to believe public service is a noble cause and the fight for justice is a shared responsibility. 
That led me to become a lawyer, a district attorney, attorney general, and a United States senator. And at every step of the way, I've been guided by the words I spoke from the first time I stood in a courtroom. Kamala Harris for the people. I have fought for children and survivors of sexual assault. I fought against transnational criminal organizations. I took on the biggest banks and helped take down one of the biggest for-profit colleges. I know a predator when I see one. My mother taught me that service to others gives life purpose and meaning. And oh, how I wish she were here tonight, but I know she's looking down on me from above. I keep thinking about that 25-year-old Indian woman, all of five feet tall, who gave birth to me at Kaiser Hospital in Oakland, California. On that day, she probably could have never imagined that I would be standing before you now and speaking these words. I accept your nomination for Vice President of the United States of America. I do so committed to the values she taught me, to the word that teaches me to walk by faith and not by sight, and to a vision passed on through generations of Americans, one that Joe Biden shares, a vision of our nation as a beloved community where all are welcome no matter what we look like, no matter where we come from, or who we love. A country where we may not agree on every detail, but we are united by the fundamental belief that every human being is of infinite worth, deserving of compassion, dignity, and respect. A country where we look out for one another, where we rise and fall as one, where we face our challenges and celebrate our triumphs together. Today, that country feels distant. Donald Trump's failure of leadership has cost lives and livelihoods. If you're a parent struggling with your child's remote learning, or you're a teacher struggling on the other side of that screen, you know what we're doing right now is not working. And we are a nation that is grieving. Grieving the loss of life, the loss of jobs, the loss of opportunities, the loss of normalcy, and yes, the loss of certainty. And while this virus touches us all, we got to be honest, it is not an equal opportunity offender. Black, Latino, and indigenous people are suffering and dying disproportionately. And this is not a coincidence. It is the effect of structural racism of inequities in education and technology, healthcare and housing, job security and transportation. 
the injustice in reproductive and maternal health care, in the excessive use of force by police, and in our broader criminal justice system. You're listening to Decision 2020, highlights of the Democrat National Convention on AM 1100 KFAX. to our coverage of Decision 2020 highlights of the Democrat Convention here on KFAX. We continue with the acceptance speech of Vice Presidential running mate Kamala Harris. This virus, it has no eyes, and yet it knows exactly how we see each other and how we treat each other. And let's be clear. There is no vaccine for racism. We've got to do the work for George Floyd, for Breonna Taylor, for the lives of too many others to name, for our children, and for all of us. We've got to do the work to fulfill that promise of equal justice under law. Because here's the thing, none of us are free until all of us are free. So we're at an inflection point. The constant chaos leaves us adrift. The incompetence makes us feel afraid. The callousness makes us feel alone. It's a lot. And here's the thing. We can do better and deserve so much more. We must elect a president who will bring something different, something better, and do the important work. A president who will bring all of us together, black, white, Latino, Asian, indigenous, to achieve the future we collectively want. We must elect Joe Biden. And I will tell you, I knew Joe as vice president. I knew Joe on the campaign trail. And I first got to know Joe as the father of my friend. So Joe's son, Bo, and I served as attorneys general of our states, Delaware and California. During the Great Recession, he and I spoke on the phone nearly every day, working together to win back billions of dollars for homeowners from the big banks that foreclosed on people's homes. And Bo and I, we would talk about his family, how as a single father, Joe would spend four hours every day riding the train back and forth from Wilmington to Washington. Bo and Hunter got to have breakfast every morning with their dad. They went to sleep every night 
with the sound of his voice reading bedtime stories. And while they endured an unspeakable loss, those two little boys always knew that they were deeply, unconditionally loved. And what also moved me about Joe is the work that he did as he was going back and forth. This is the leader who wrote the Violence Against Women Act and enacted the assault weapons ban, who as vice president implemented the Recovery Act, which brought our country back from the Great Recessions. He championed the Affordable Care Act, protecting millions of Americans with pre-existing conditions, who spent decades promoting American values and interests around the world. Joe, he believes we stand with our allies and stand up to our adversaries. Right now, we have a president who turns our tragedies into political weapons. Joe will be a president who turns our challenges into purpose. Joe will bring us together to build an economy that doesn't leave anyone behind, where a good-paying job is the floor, not the ceiling. Joe will bring us together to end this pandemic and make sure that we are prepared for the next one. Joe will bring us together to squarely face and dismantle racial injustice, furthering the work of generations. Joe and I believe that we can build that beloved community, one that is strong and decent, just and kind, one in which we can all see ourselves. That's the vision that our parents and grandparents fought for, the vision that made my own life possible, the vision that makes the American promise for all its complexities and imperfections a promise worth fighting for. So make no mistake, the road ahead is not easy. We may stumble. We may fall short. But I pledge to you that we will act boldly and deal with our challenges honestly. We will speak truths and we will act with the same faith in you that we ask you to place in us. We believe that our country, all of us, will stand together for a better future. And we already are. We see it in the doctors, the nurses, the home health care workers, and frontline workers who are risking their lives to save people they've never met. We see it in the teachers and truck drivers, the factory workers and farmers, the postal workers and poll workers, all putting their own safety on the line to help us get through this pandemic. And we see it in so many of you who are working, not just to get us through our current crisis, but to somewhere better. There's something happening all across our country. It's not about Joe or me. 
It's about you. And it's about us. People of all ages and colors and creeds who are, yes, taken to the streets and also persuading our family members, rallying our friends, organizing our neighbors, and getting out the vote. And we have shown that when we vote, we expand access to health care and expand access to the ballot box and ensure that more working families can make a decent living. And I'm so inspired by a new generation. You, you are pushing us to realize the ideals of our nation, pushing us to live the values we share, decency and fairness, justice and love. You are patriots who remind us that to love our country is to fight for the ideals of our country. In this election, we have a chance to change the course of history. We're all in this fight. You, me, and Joe, together. What an awesome responsibility. What an awesome privilege. So let's fight with conviction. Let's fight with hope. Let's fight with confidence in ourselves and a commitment to each other, to the America we know is possible, the America we love. And years from now, this moment will have passed, and our children and our grandchildren will look in our eyes, and they're going to ask us, where were you when the stakes were so high? They will ask us, what was it like? And we will tell them. We will tell them not just how we felt. We will tell them what we did. Thank you. God bless you. And God bless the United States of America. You're listening to Decision 2020, highlights of the Democrat National Convention on AM 1100 KFAX. Back to our coverage of Decision 2020, highlights of the Democrat National Convention here on KFAX. I mentioned earlier in our number one in my opening remarks that it is highly unusual for a former president to criticize a successor. It just simply isn't done. It's just been a matter of protocol for many, many years. Unfortunately, this is a case where that protocol is broken, and I think you need to hear it and be aware of what was said. 
again, part of the, the broader sense of being an informed voter and uh, knowing exactly what the stakes are as we head to the ballot box, one fashion or another, this coming November 3rd. Here is the address delivered at the Democrat National Convention by former President Barack Obama. Good evening, everybody. As you've seen by now, this isn't a normal convention. It's not a normal time. So tonight, I want to talk as plainly as I can about the stakes in this election. Because what we do these next 76 days will echo through generations to come. I'm in Philadelphia, where our Constitution was drafted and signed. It wasn't a perfect document. It allowed for the inhumanity of slavery and failed to guarantee women, and even men who didn't own property, the right to participate in the political process. But embedded in this document was a North Star that would guide future generations. A system of representative government, a democracy, through which we could better realize our highest ideals. Through civil war and bitter struggles, we improved this Constitution to include the voices of those who'd once been left out. And gradually, we made this country more just and more equal and more free. The one constitutional office elected by all of the people is the presidency. So at a minimum, we should expect a president to feel a sense of responsibility for the safety and welfare of all 330 million of us, regardless of what we look like, how we worship, who we love, how much money we have, or who we voted for. But we should also expect a president to be the custodian of this democracy. We should expect that regardless of ego, ambition, or political beliefs, the president will preserve, protect, and defend the freedoms and ideals that so many Americans marched for, went to jail for, fought for, and died for. I have sat in the Oval Office with both of the men who are running for president. I never expected that my successor would embrace my vision or continue my policies. I did hope, for the sake of our country, that Donald Trump might show some interest in taking the job seriously. That he might come to feel the weight of the office and discover some reverence for the democracy that had been placed in his care. But he never did. For close to four years now, he has shown no interest in putting in the work, no interest in finding common ground, no interest in using the awesome power of his office to help anyone but himself and his friends, no interest in treating the presidency as anything but one more reality show that he can use to get the attention he craves. Donald Trump hasn't grown into the job because he can't. And the consequences of that failure are severe. 170,000 Americans dead. Millions of jobs gone, while those at the top take in more than ever. 
our worst impulses unleashed, our proud reputation around the world badly diminished, and our democratic institutions threatened like never before. Now, I know that in times as polarized as these, most of you have already made up your mind. But maybe you're still not sure which candidate you'll vote for or whether you'll vote at all. Maybe you're tired of the direction we're headed, but you can't see a better path yet. Or you just don't know enough about the person who wants to lead us there. So let me tell you about my friend, Joe Biden. Twelve years ago, when I began my search for a vice president, I didn't know I'd end up finding a brother. Joe and I come from different places, different generations, but what I quickly came to admire about Joe Biden is his resilience, born of too much struggle, his empathy, born of too much grief. Joe is a man who learned early on to treat every person he meets with respect and dignity, living by the words his parents taught him. No one's better than you, Joe, but you're better than nobody. That empathy, that decency, the belief that everybody counts, that's who Joe is. When he talks with someone who's lost her job, Joe remembers the night his father sat him down to say that he'd lost his. When Joe listens to a parent who's trying to hold it all together right now, he does it as a single dad who took the train back to Wilmington each and every night so he could tuck his kids into bed. When he meets with military families who've lost their hero, he does it as a kindred spirit, the parent of an American soldier, somebody whose faith has endured the hardest loss there is. For eight years, Joe was the last one in the room whenever I faced a big decision. He made me a better president, and he's got the character and the experience to make us a better country. And in my friend Kamala Harris, he's chosen an ideal partner who is more than prepared for the job, someone who knows what it's like to overcome barriers and who's made a career fighting to help others live out their own American dream. Along with the experience needed to get things done, Joe and Kamala have concrete policies that will turn their vision of a better, fairer, stronger country into reality. They will get this pandemic under control, like Joe did when he helped me manage H1N1 and prevent an Ebola outbreak from reaching our shores. They'll expand health care to more Americans, like Joe and I did 10 years ago when he helped craft the Affordable Care Act and nail down the votes to make it the law. They'll rescue the economy, like Joe helped me do after the Great Recession. I asked him to manage the Recovery Act, which jump-started the longest stretch of job growth in history. And he sees this moment now not as a chance to get back to where we were, but to make long-overdue changes so that our economy actually makes life a little easier for everybody, whether it's the waitress trying to raise a kid on her own, or the shift worker always on the edge of getting laid off, 
or the student figuring out how to pay for next semester's classes. Joe and Kamala will restore our standing in the world. And as we've learned from this pandemic, that matters. Joe knows the world, and the world knows him. He knows that our true strength comes from setting an example that the world wants to follow. A nation that stands with democracy, not dictators. A nation that can inspire and mobilize others to overcome threats like climate change and terrorism, poverty and disease. But more than anything, what I know about Joe, what I know about Kamala, is that they actually care about every American and that they care deeply about this democracy. They believe that in a democracy, the right to vote is sacred, and we should be making it easier for people to cast their ballots, not harder. They believe that no one, including the president, is above the law, and that no public official, including the president, should use their office to enrich themselves or their supporters. They understand that in this democracy, the commander-in-chief does not use the men and women of our military who are willing to risk everything to protect our nation as political props to deploy against peaceful protesters on our own soil. They understand that political opponents aren't un-American just because they disagree with you. A free press isn't the enemy, but the way we hold officials accountable. That our ability to work together to solve big problems like a pandemic depend on a fidelity to facts and science and logic and not just making stuff up. None of this should be controversial. These shouldn't be Republican principles or Democratic principles. They are American principles. But at this moment, this president and those who enable him have shown they don't believe in these things. You're listening to Decision 2020, highlights of the Democrat National Convention on AM 1100 KFAX. Welcome back to our continuing coverage of Decision 2020, highlights of the Democrat National Convention, as we continue with the address by former President Barack Obama. Tonight, I'm asking you to believe in Joe and Kamala's ability to lead this country out of these dark times and build it back better. But here's the thing. No single American can fix this country alone. Not even a president. 
Democracy was never meant to be transactional. You give me your vote, I make everything better. It requires an active and informed citizenry. So I'm also asking you to believe in your own ability to embrace your own responsibility as citizens, to make sure that the basic tenets of our democracy endure. Because that's what's at stake right now. Our democracy. Look, I understand why a lot of Americans are down on government. The way the rules have been set up and abused in Congress make it easier for special interests to stop progress than to make progress. Believe me, I, I know it. I understand why a white factory worker who's seen his wages cut or his job shipped overseas might feel like the government no longer looks out for him and why a black mom might feel like it never looked out for her at all. I understand why a new immigrant might look around this country and wonder whether there's still a place for him here. Why a young person might look at politics right now. The circus of it all, the meanness and the lies and conspiracy theories and think, what is the point? Well, here's the point. This president and those in power, those who benefit from keeping things the way they are, they are counting on your cynicism. They know they can't win you over with their policies. So they're hoping to make it as hard as possible for you to vote and to convince you that your vote does not matter. That is how they win. That is how they get to keep making decisions that affect your life and the lives of the people you love. That's how the economy will keep getting skewed to the wealthy and well-connected. How our health systems will let more people fall through the cracks. That's how a democracy withers, until it's no democracy at all. And we cannot let that happen. Do not let them take away your power. Do not let them take away your democracy. Make a plan right now for how you are going to get involved and vote. Do it as early as you can and tell your family and friends how they can vote too. Do what Americans have done for over two centuries when faced with even tougher times than this. All those quiet heroes who found the courage to keep marching, keep pushing in the face of hardship and injustice. Last month, we lost a giant of American democracy in John Lewis. And some years ago, I sat down with John and a few remaining leaders of the early civil rights movement. One of them told me he never imagined he'd walk into the White House and see a president who looked like his grandson. And then he told me that he had looked it up. And it turned out that on the very day that I was born, he was marching into a jail cell trying to end Jim Crow segregation in the South. What we do echoes through generations. 
whatever our backgrounds. We are all the children of Americans who fought the good fight. Great-grandparents working in fire traps and sweatshops without rights or representation. Farmers losing their dreams to dust. Irish and Italians and Asians and Latinos told, go back where you come from. Jews and Catholics, Muslims and Sikhs made to feel suspect for the way they worshipped. Black Americans chained and whipped and hanged, spit on for trying to sit at lunch counters, beaten for trying to vote. If anyone had a right to believe that this democracy did not work and could not work, it was those Americans, our ancestors. They were on the receiving end of a democracy that had fallen short all their lives. They knew how far the daily reality of America strayed from the myth. And yet, instead of giving up, they joined together. And they said, somehow, some way, we are going to make this work. We are going to bring those words in our founding documents to life. I have seen that same spirit rising these past few years. Folks of every age and background who packed city centers and airports and rural roads so that families wouldn't be separated, so that another classroom wouldn't get shot up, so that our kids won't grow up on an uninhabitable planet. Americans of all races joining together to declare, in the face of injustice and brutality at the hands of the state, that black lives matter. No more, but no less. So that no child in this country feels the continuing sting of racism. To the young people who led us this summer, telling us we need to be better, in so many ways, you are this country's dreams fulfilled. Earlier generations had to be persuaded that everyone has equal worth. For you, it's a given, a conviction. And what I want you to know is that for all its messiness, and frustrations, your system of self-government can be harnessed to help you realize those convictions for all of us. You can give our democracy new meaning. You can take it to a better place. You're the missing ingredient the ones who will decide whether or not America becomes the country that fully lives up to its creed. That work will continue long after this election. But any chance of success depends entirely on the outcome of this election. This administration has shown it will tear our democracy down if that's what it takes for them to win.
So we have to get busy building it up by pouring all our efforts into these 76 days and by voting like never before for Joe and Kamala and candidates up and down the ticket so that we leave no doubt about what this country that we love stands for today and for all our days to come. Stay safe. God bless you.